Good morning. You will find the notes this morning's message in your bulletin. Please join with me in a word of prayer. Lord God, as we approach a difficult and yet important subject, I pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Give me clarity of speech, precision of words. But I pray that for those who name your name, for those who look to your word for truth, that there would be a unity of mind, a concord, an agreement, a, a certainty of, of what is right, what is wrong, and what you would have us do. So Lord, as we look at the issue of, of abortion um, in our culture and around us, give us those eyes to see and those ears to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. We have paused our study, the book of Ephesians, last week for five weeks to do a, a brief series entitled, We Are His Creatures dealing with addressing, answering um, three particular issues, the issue of abortion, homosexuality, transgender, over five weeks. Um, a lot of that help that Daniel and I found in preparing for this came out of this book by Nancy Piercy, the one he mentioned in the announcements, Love Thy Body. I, I think it's very helpful. And last week, I laid out two foundational truths. The opening message didn't even directly deal with any of these issues, but two truths that are important to counter, to answer, to understand uh, those three issues of abortion, homosexuality, and transgenderism. And they were, simply put, the truth that we are flesh and spirit. We are physical and immaterial. Uh, that, that we are composite beings. We are not souls who inhabit bodies. We are ensouled bodies or embodied souls, whichever way you want to come at it. We are that union. And that in, in much of these issues, there's an attempt to pit the mind or the person or the soul against the body. The other reality is that we are made and we are under obligation. We live in a culture obsessed with autonomy. A culture that can really not conceive of any obligations that are not consensual, that we do not agree to. And so understanding that as God's creatures, we are all under authority, that God does not require our consent to command us, that we are obligated to do certain things, whether we agree to it or not. This is also critical in approaching these issues. So those are the two truths. We are flesh, we are spirit, we are made, and we are under obligation. This week, we'll hope to apply that, dealing with answering the evil of abortion. And I'm going to need to begin by offering three qualifications to what I'm here to do this morning and what I'm not here to do. The first issue, I am addressing abortion as it's made, the argument is made, not the edge cases. Uh, I know that there are difficult situations, ectopic pregnancy situations, where they have to choose, it appears, between saving the life of the mother and the life of the child. I recognize those are difficult situations. That's not what I'm primarily speaking to. Um, what I will say is this. I, I recognize there are situations where you can't take another person on the lifeboat of a, of a, of a ship that is sunk, and you may need to keep people. I, these, these situations are difficult. They are the edge case. And I think it may be permissible in certain situations to, to push that person away from the boat lest they sink the boat. Um, all I would insist upon is that the moral math that you have to do in such equations doesn't depend upon the fact that the child is an unborn child, that the math would work just as well outside of the womb as inside the womb. We can talk more about that in the ABF, but I'm not addressing those issues. So when I talk about abortion, I'm assuming, and, and in those cases, they don't call it abortion. They don't speak of it as abortion. I'm assuming we're talking about not those scenarios 
where, the, where they're trying to save the life of the mother. Um, that's the first qualification. The second is, this is not meant to be a political message. There are political implications, but I'm not giving this message to tell you how to vote, what party to get behind. Um, if you, like me, would like to live in a country where murder is illegal, that will have political implications, because I'm going to argue that abortion is murder. But what I'm trying to settle is for those who call Christ as king, for those who look to God's word as a source of truth, let's settle that issue for us. Um, let, let's, let's be on the same page. Let's, let's, is there any debate? Is there any question? I think the Bible gives clear answers. So my goal this morning is for those of us who look to God's word, who want to obey him and submit ourselves to his kingly rule, what would he have us do? Because certainly there are some in the professing Christian church who, who claim other views and say this is a confusing issue. I want to try to bring some clarity. So that's what I'm trying to do. The third qualification, I am addressing and trying to answer this morning the apologists of abortion. The people in the news, the people in the media, the people who write books, the academics, the arguments that are put forward at that level, which are going to be significantly different than the temptations and motives of the individual young woman considering having an abortion. Um, There you may deal with issues of of pressure and fear and uncertainty. That's not what I'm addressing. I'm addressing the argument for abortion, which is separate from and distinct from the particular reasons an individual may choose to have one or be considering one. So with those three qualifications out of the way, we're dealing with the primary argument, not dealing with the edge cases, not fundamentally trying to make a political issue here, trying to settle a biblical issue. And to distinguish that I'm answering and trying to address the, the apologists, the, the theology behind the pro-abortion argument, not particularly answering or dealing with or speaking to a particular individual who may feel frightened, scared, trapped, whatever their reasons might be. I'm not speaking to that directly. The flow of the message is going to follow three, three I hope, easily to follow points. The first, I'm going to try to give a brief summary of the arguments made, the primary arguments made in support of abortion. What is the rationale? Um, second, what does the Bible say about that? What is a biblical understanding and response? Third, if we agree on that, if we can agree on who and what the child in the womb is and what obligations we have for the child, is there anything beyond that we can apply? Is there anything more than let's not kill our children that we should take from this? I think there is. So with that said, um, we're going to move into... Arguments made in support of abortion. Um, and, and I really do hope I don't make a straw man here and misrepresent anybody. I think they can be grouped under two headings. Arguments concerning the identity of the child and arguments concerning the liberty of the mother, which, by the way, lines up with the two points I made last week. The arguments regarding the child, you're going to see the attempt to pit the body against the mind. You're going to see arguments about viewing the child purely as a body, or not even as a body, just as, as matter, fetal tissue. And when it comes to the woman, the mother, there are going to be arguments about consent and liberty and obligation. So that's how last week's two points, we are flesh and we are spirit, and we are made and we are obligated, tie right in with the arguments concerning the identity of the child and the arguments concerning the liberty of the mother. So let's begin. First argument, this is less in vogue now, but it was more popular in the past, and at the lower popular levels, it may still survive some, which is the belief that the unborn is not yet human. The unborn is not yet human. Um, 
this, this stems from the belief, I mean, if you even read C.S. Lewis, this, was, this, this type of thinking was in vogue in his day, that the, the child goes through the evolutionary stages leading up to humanity. When people talk about fetal tissue, that's what they're trying to do is avoid the issue. This is a human, this is a baby. So that's one argument, that what is gestating in the womb is not yet human. It's a potential human. It's a potential person. Some attempts to even try to fit this into the Bible would include appealing to Genesis 2-7, where God's um, making of the man is said that he formed the man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And they say, see, it wasn't until God breathed into Adam the breath of life, and presumably Adam takes a breath. They're sort of picturing God giving like a rescue breath here or something. And that's when Adam became alive. Now this argument is not nearly so in vogue today simply because we know so much more. We can see so much more of what's going on. My wife is only at 28 weeks, and they've already done intensive scans of all four chambers of the hearts of both of our girls. They've been able to see brain function. They've been able to see blood flow, fingers, toes, hands. I mean, it's clear you're dealing with life, and it's clear you're dealing with a human life. So this is a less popular argument now, but it still exists, the argument, well, the child's not yet human. Far more prevalent, however, is the argument that the unborn is not yet a person. Given the advances in medical technology and our ability to see into the womb, to see what's going on, largely, especially at the higher level, the academic level, and the legal level, arguments denying the humanity... Of the, of the baby have been abandoned. And what largely is now being made is the argument over what's called personhood theory. This was brought up in the Roe versus Wade issue. This is the primary argument made now. And uh, it basically is the argument that what gives life its value is personhood, which there's no real clear consensus on what personhood is, but it's usually some amalgamation of abstract thinking, self-reflection, self-recognition, a desire to stay alive, having desires and will, um, being able to engage with and interact with other people. Um, these, These are the types of things. There's no clear consensus over what it is, but the unbelieving mind, the the secularists, the naturalists, as they try to distinguish why is this collection of atoms sacred and deserving of protection, and why is the snow outside not, is, well, because this collection of atoms has personhood. They see, in some sense, as something wonderful. God is made, and they respond to it, and they say, that is, is amazing, that is valuable, and that's where they attach personhood and value. And since they don't see the unborn child Evidencing that, they say the child is human, the child is alive, it's not a person, therefore it doesn't have human rights. This was the basis of the Roe versus Wade um, logic. I'll give you a quote here. Um, In place of intrinsic human dignity as the foundation of our culture and laws, advocates of the new bioethical order want moral value to be measured individual by individual, whether animal or human, and moment by moment. Under this view, we each must earn full moral status by currently possessing capacities sufficient to be deemed a person. Authors claim that one is not a person unless one can value their own lives, and it means no one then is ever permanently invested with human rights. In other words, if you can't value your own life, your life has less value. This means that you can be a person today, but not a person tomorrow, and not a person today, and be killed before you become one Tomorrow, probably the most famous and well-known or infamous, if you want, advocate of this theory, is Peter Albert David Singer. 
He is an Australian moral philosopher. He is the Ira W. DeCamp Professor of Bioethics at Princeton University. So this is not some fringe niche perspective. This is the Ira DeCamp Professor of Bioethics at Princeton, professor at the Center for Applied Philosophy and Public Ethics at the University of Melbourne. And writing a critique of Singer, Nat Hentoff, writing in September of 1999, writes this. Singer often claims that his views have been misquoted, so I am directly quoting from his book, from Practical Ethics, quote, here's now Singer, human babies are not born self-aware or capable of grasping that they exist over time. They are not persons, end quote. But animals are self-aware, and therefore, Peter Singer says, begin quote, the life of the newborn is of less value than the life of a pig or a dog or a chimpanzee. The logic being pigs, dogs, and chimpanzees express more personhood, more will, more desire, more self-awareness than a newborn child. Accordingly, in Should the Baby Live, Singer writes, it does not seem wise to add to the burden on limited resources by increasing the number of severely disabled children, end quote. Also in that same book, Singer and his colleague Helga Kusa suggested that, quote, a period of 28 days after birth might be allowed before an infant is accepted as having the same rights to live as others. Princeton Chair, Bioethics. So personhood is something you gradually grow into and potentially grow out of. This is the same rationale being made for euthanasia and for the mentally disabled or for people at advanced levels of Alzheimer's. They stop being people. Um, this, is, this is terrible, terrible stuff, but this is the, the rationale that's being put forward. Um, we, we've heard before of life undeserving of life or human non-persons, and it has never borne good fruit in the past, and it is bearing equally bad fruit now. But that's, that's the rationale. It's human, but it's not a person. And so person, it has all the value. Notice the pitting of the body against the mind or the spirit. There's, there's a full acceptance. This is a human living body, an organism. Yep, it's not a person. So what ethical and moral value does it have? Zero. They're pitting the soul or the mind against the body. Next, we have arguments concerning the liberty of the mother. And here, I think this is important to get as well, because I think the argument for the, the dehumanizing, the depersonizing of the baby has really made way to make room for this argument. This was what began the opening arguments of Roe versus Wade. The, the implication that if we're not allowed to, to abort on demand, then we are severely and wrongly interfering with the mother's moral right of choice. It's her body, her choice, her decision. That's the rationale. And here we come up against our culture's unwillingness to recognize any obligation that's not consensual. I remember a very uh, eye-opening moment I was discussing with a friend of mine from the other perspective on this, and I'd assumed in the discussion, in fact, I think I paused the discussion to say, can we agree that if I was able to persuade you the child in the womb was a fully um, human, was fully human, that, that abortion would be wrong, and which they said to me, Jeremy, and I really do appreciate the honesty because it, it really helped things click for me. I don't believe the child is, but even if the child was, it would be the lesser of two evils to kill it 
Because, this person was telling me, imposing our will on someone else, on a woman, especially men imposing their will on a woman, is such an unacceptable thing that if you have to weigh in the scales which is worse, which is more evil, the, the removing of freedom, the imposing of this burden, telling a woman against her will, sorry, you must carry this child to term, is, is, is a form of slavery, as viewed as, that is completely unacceptable. So whatever value or worth the child has, it, it, it does not equal into the scales. I'll read you a quote on this. Mary Elizabeth Williams, writing in 2013, um, writes this in her article, So What If Abortion Ends Life? Of all the diabolically clever moves, this is Elizabeth Williams, of all the diabolically clever moves the anti-choice lobby has ever pulled, surely one of the greatest has been its consistent co-opting of the word life. Life! Who wants to argue with that? Who wants to be on the side of not life? Yet, I know that throughout my own pregnancies, I have never wavered for a moment in the belief that I was carrying a human life inside of me. I believe that's what a fetus is, a human life, and that doesn't make me one iota less solidly pro-choice. She's actually rebuking the pro-choice party for dodging this issue. She's saying, just come up and admit it. It's a human life. Of course it is. And of course abortion ends a human life. So what? Stop cowering, she's saying to her political, her ideological side. Yet a fetus can be a human life without having the same rights as the woman in whose body it resides. She's the boss. Her life and what is right for her circumstances and her health should automatically trump the rights of the non-autonomous entity inside of her. Always. Even if I still need to acknowledge my conviction that the fetus is indeed life, it is a life worth sacrificing. So there you've simply said, if I have to choose between the value, whatever value this child has, and the value of a woman's right to choice, the woman's right to choice is more valuable. Third, four, sec, fourth argument, second end of this point. So three doesn't really factor into it either way. Um, two would make sense, four would make sense. Okay, is abortion, so we just had... Um, Abortion is a mother's moral right of choice. Abortion is vital for gender equality. Abortion is vital for gender equality. And this, I think, is also part of what's driving this. And, and again, in the opening arguments of Roe versus Ray, you can read them. This is the point being made to the court. If, if, this, woman, if this right is not granted to women, they will be a second-tier status. See, because as men and women couple, generally, pregnancies follow. And yet a man can walk away from any responsibility he has. A man can continue with his career. A man can go off and not be forced to endure a pregnancy, which certainly will take a woman out of the workplace for some period of time, likely cause her to be dependent on her family or worse yet this guy. We have to find another man who will care for her. And so because of that, they will not be able to, women will not be able to uh, reach as high levels in the workplace as their careers will be interrupted. And so the argument is made that you cannot impose a restriction on women that you don't impose on men. And there can be no um, laws forcing men to endure a pregnancy. Therefore, it's wrong when you'd be making women unequal with men if you made this law. Let me read a quote here. This is from um, the BBC website. Women's liberation movement sees abortion rights as vital for gender equality. They say that if a woman is not allowed to have an abortion, she is not only forced to to have an abortion, is... Sorry, is expected um, to continue the abortion. The resulting child may, for many years to come, um, I'm misreading that quote. I'm sorry, I need bigger font. 
They got bigger font than the other ones. This is a big quote, small font. The women's liberation movement sees abortion rights as vital for gender equality. They say that if a woman is not allowed to have an abortion, she is not only forced to continue the pregnancy to birth, but also expected by society to support and look after the resulting child for many years to come. They argue that only if women have the right to choose whether or not to have children can they achieve equality with men. Men don't get pregnant and so aren't restricted in the same way. Furthermore, they say, women's freedom and life choices are limited by bearing children and the stereotypes, social customs, and oppressive duties they went with it, that went with it. They also regard the right to control one's own body as a key moral right and one that women could only achieve if they were entitled to abort any unwanted fetus. No woman can call herself free until she can choose consciously whether she will or will not be a mother. Margaret Sanger of Planned Parenthood says in summary, women need free access to abortion in order to achieve full political, social, and economic equality with men. Women need the right to abortion in order to have the same freedom as men. Women need the right to an abortion to have full rights over their own bodies, including the right to decide whether or not to carry a fetus to birth. Without this, they do not have the same moral status as men. Now, there may be other arguments. I think really these two categories... Arguments over who and what the child in the womb is, and arguments over the freedom and the rights of the woman are the, the primary arguments. So with what little time we have, I'd like to respond to that. Uh, please open your Bibles to Exodus 21. Exodus 21. Thankfully, Scripture is clear, I believe, on this issue. Scripture is clear. And in Exodus 21 we encounter a series of case law, what's called casuistry. In this scenario, this. In that scenario, that. And we get to a remarkable one here in Exodus 21, 22 to 25. Yes, I know we're not under the law, but whatever the law says, it is good and right and holy. And so when we see the law value something, we realize it's valuable. And so we're going to learn from this. Exodus 21, 22. When men strive together... And hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out. But there is no harm. The one who hit her shall surely be fined, as the woman's husband shall impose on him. And he shall pay as the judges determine. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. Now, what you're seeing here is what's often referred to as the lex talionis, the law of retribution. I think frequently misunderstood. Um, this, this law um, shows up in other places, um, specifically Deuteronomy 19.21, life for life, tooth for tooth, foot for foot, is actually setting a boundary for Israel. If, if you slap me, I can't cut off your hand. The most I could do is slap you. If you gouge out my eye, the most I could do to you would be to gouge out your eye. It stops excessive retribution. It, it, it's, it's to rein in vengeance. The, the most you can do is what was done to you. So, okay, here in this scenario, we have what we'd consider unintentional manslaughter. Two men are fighting. Now, they're responsible because they're fighting. They shouldn't be fighting. And while they're fighting and striving, a woman is hit. She goes into labor. The children come out. If the children are fine, the child or children are fine, there's a fine imposed. But if there is harm... What God is saying is, in his view and in his justice, in his law, the life of that child, the health of that child, is equal to the man who caused the miscarriage's health. Hand for hand, eye for eye, life 
for life. Isn't that a remarkable statement? By the way, no statement here on how far along the woman is. This doesn't only apply in the third trimester. It's simply the woman is pregnant. She's struck. Children come out. And then, whatever befalls those children and her is to befall the man who did it. Uh, There is remarkable um, exaltation, valuing of the mother and the child. And again, this is for unintentional manslaughter. This doesn't speak to those who would intentionally end a pregnancy. This is just if it happens accidentally. You could be put to death for this. Remarkable text. Remarkable text. We'll we'll move on. Um, So the first blank of the unborn were fully protected in God's law. Fully protected. Again and again in Scripture, God protects, has a heart for the, the widow, the orphan, the weak, the powerless. And so I'm not surprised that God has a section of this law protecting the rights of the unborn. You can imagine with this law in Israel's law, you'd, you'd be very careful how you acted around a pregnant woman. There's no statement of intent here. It's an accident, but you can be put to death if you end the life of that child. Okay, Psalm 51.5 David says this, and you can follow along if you want. The other big text we're going to spend some time in is in Luke 1. So you can follow along or I can read these. You can look them up later. But in, in Psalm 51.5, David is in the midst of confessing his sin of adultery and murder. He stole the wife of Uriah the Hittite, had him murdered. And he writes, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Notice the distinction. I was brought forth. I, I left the womb. I was born in iniquity. And in sin did my mother conceive me. Now I know David does not have the knowledge of conception that we do, medically speaking. But what's clear is he's not just declaring himself a moral being as he leaves the womb. He's declaring himself a moral being at the beginning of his conception, whatever that might be, before that. And and all the point I want to draw from that is this. David understands himself to be a moral creature prior to birth. And I would suggest to you that only persons are moral agents. We don't speak of evil rocks or evil trees. Only people are moral beings. David views himself as a moral being from conception. In sin did my mother conceive me. He's not speaking about her sin. This is a psalm about his sin. And what he's in essence saying to God is, not only did I do this terrible thing, but I see this through and through. From my very beginning till now, I have been a rebel against you, God. He's asking for cleansing. And he doesn't just want cleansing for the murder and the adultery. He wants cleansing through and through. And so he confesses at conception, he was sinful. At conception, he was a moral agent. Moving on, Psalm 139. Psalm 139, 13. You formed my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. And this may seem obvious, but I think it's important. The baby is the person who will be born. The baby is the person who will be born. So the psalmist sees no disjunct between who he is now and who he was then. He looks back in his mind's eye to his mother being um, in in pregnancy with him, his, his, his mother having him grow inside of her. And who is that he's looking at, that God's knitting together? That's me. Not who I would become. Not the... The the fetal mass that would become me, that's me. You knit me together in my mother's womb. 
If I show my children pictures of Serena at various stages of pregnancy with Abner or Zadok, and we say, who's inside? It's you to Abner or Zadok or Sophie. The baby in the womb, there's, there's no split. Our world wants to say, okay, it's just a body, just a body, just a body. Ta-da, person. Nope. The Bible sees an absolute continuity without any big break. That was me. The baby in the womb is the person who will be born. This is the basis of, of passages like Jeremiah 1.5. God speaking to Jeremiah, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Okay, now if you will turn to Luke chapter 1. This is absolutely a, a remarkable passage and, and very important when dealing with this issue. So there's some of Old Testament. We're just doing a, a brief survey of the biblical assumption and belief. But I'll, I'll show it to you in action here. Let's just begin by reading Luke one twenty six to 56. This is the account um, of the angel coming to Mary, announcing to her that she would become pregnant, and then Mary going and visiting with Elizabeth. So Luke chapter 1, verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. But the, and the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will Give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? The angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and she is in the sixth month. With her who is called barren, and nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country, to, the, to a town in Judea. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women! And blessed is the fruit of your womb, and why is this granted to me? That the mother of my Lord should come to me. For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what the Lord, what was spoken to her from the Lord. And then Mary responds, what we call the Magnificat. I just want to look at verse 56. Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. There's four, four things I want to get from this. First, again, let's start with the low-hanging fruit. John the Baptist in utero is called a baby. The, the Bible doesn't say the fetus, the pre-human. This is the exact same word used to describe the baby. Verse 41, the baby leaped in her womb as Jesus is called a baby outside of the womb in chapter 2. In Luke 2.16, they went and found, went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. Same word. So the Bible gives the same title, baby, 
John the Baptist, in utero, Jesus outside of the womb. It's a baby. Second, John rejoiced in the womb. This is partially a fulfillment of what the angel told his father Zechariah, that he would be filled with the Holy Spirit from the womb. And again, what we're seeing here is a number of things that I think we'd add to personhood. He hears something, he interprets what he hears, and he responds emotionally, cognitively, with joy. And I would argue that that response is a righteous and pleasing response. He's doing something pleasing to God. He's doing a moral act. So in utero, John the Baptist hears, to some degree understands what he hears. In fact, the very first person to respond to the incarnated Christ is John the Baptist in utero. He jumps for joy, then Elizabeth gets filled with the Spirit, and then she, under the inspiration of the Spirit, speaks. But the one who initiates this is John. He begins his prophetic work here, in the womb. It's remarkable. So we don't simply have to take the Bible's word for it in in sort of theory. We see it here. Here is a personal, moral agent working, acting in the womb. That's not all. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, being filled with the Spirit, look at how Elizabeth titles Mary. Mary is the mother of my Lord. Not will be the mother of my Lord. She is the mother of my Lord. And the child, the fruit of her womb, is blessed. Not will be blessed. I don't want you to do the math. The angel tells Mary, Elizabeth is how far along? Six months. And Mary, when the angel tells her this, is not yet pregnant, right? Because the angel is coming to announce what will happen. So Mary is not pregnant, and Elizabeth is six months pregnant. Mary, according to verse 39, makes haste and went to the hill country. We don't know where. A couple days, maybe a week or so journey. And she goes. How long does Mary stay with her? About three months. Three months and six months? That's nine months. And the very next thing in verse 57, now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth. Okay, so Mary's not pregnant. Elizabeth is six months pregnant. Mary gets up with haste and goes to Elizabeth. Mary stays about three months. Mary leaves. How far along can Mary be when she walks into Elizabeth's house? Days? A week? Two weeks at most? Under a month? I think that that wiggle room is what about three months establishes, the travel time. So Mary is, let's just be really generous, a month, three and a half weeks pregnant. Far likely less. She's conceived. This child in her womb that would be hard to detect, even with our equipment today, makes her a mother, the mother of the Lord. The child is blessed. And here's the thing. The response of John the Baptist in the womb, the response of Elizabeth, is response to the Christ child, is response to the Son of God in her womb, which means this. In Mary's womb is Jesus, not the body Jesus would inhabit. Jesus is present. That's the whole point of the narrative. Elizabeth says, why do I get this great honor? John the Baptist in utero rejoices and jumps. Why? Because it's happened. Somewhere in between the announcement of the angel and Mary walking into the front door of Elizabeth's house, the Holy Spirit has come upon her. The shadow of the Most High has been upon her. She has conceived. Jesus is present. And Mary's only days, a week or two, three, max, pregnant. Because you can look at John the Baptist and say, okay, he's six months long, second trimester. 
This is early first trimester. And this baby in Mary's womb is receiving honor, praise, do the Son of God. This is not the potential Christ or the body that Christ would eventually turn into. Or this is not a collection of fetal tissue that will become Jesus. He's there. He's present. What's amazing is Luke then, for Luke, the incarnation of Jesus begins, began at conception. The incarnation of Jesus began at conception. And start arguing person to theory here. You're going to end up with blasphemy. So the scripture gives us at the earliest of stages the clear personhood, the clear moral status, the clear honor, the clear dignity of the Christ child in Mary's womb. Making it clear to us what the child in the womb is. It's a human being. Bottom blank here. The unborn child is fully human from conception. Deserving of all honor and respect due image bearers of God. So, those four texts largely answer the first collection of arguments concerning the identity of the child. What is the child in the womb? It's fully human. The child is fully human. The child has equal moral value with the grown man who caused the miscarriage. It's not... Human, but as this one author I read said, less valuable than the mother. No, the man who caused the miscarriage is put to death, life for life, eye for eye, of equal stature and value and standing, biblically. And this isn't sort of the Lord in Luke 1. Pre-Lord, this is the Lord and the mother of my Lord. That's, That's what makes the whole narrative make sense. Is Elizabeth stunned at the honor that Mary, the mother of my Lord, and the fruit of your womb is blessed. She's responding to that. So how then do we respond to the second portion concerning the liberty of the mother? Well, last week we made it clear that we all have obligations and responsibilities placed upon us that are not consensual. Children are called upon by God to honor their mother and father, even if their mother and father are, frankly, dishonorable. We're all called upon to submit, to honor, obey, to pay taxes to Caesar, even if Caesar is Caesar. And of course, we all are beholding to God. Turn, turn to Titus chapter 2. There's a lot of passages I could go to. We could just look at thou shalt not murder, but I thought this might be helpful in Titus 2. Because biblically, and just practically, we understand that men and women are not totally equal in every sense. Of course they're not. The most obvious sense in which men and women are not fully equal is my wife is right now doing something I cannot do. She's building people. I don't, know if, I don't know if you know this. People get really caught up in man and woman and personal covers. Where these words came from, we were all understood to be man, mankind. One of us could build people. And the people who made the words thought that was a pretty big deal, so they affixed womb, W-O-M-B, womb. I spelled that right, right, Daniel? Okay. Womb, man. So my wife is the man with the womb, and I'm just the man. That's, that's the, there's no patriarchal conspiracy behind this. The origin of these words is, we're both man, this is the one, build people. The womb man. And of course, in that sense, we're not totally equal. Now, we're equal as image bearers. We're equal of moral status and dignity and value. But we're not equal in what we can do. There's a reason why at the Olympics, we have men's and women's categories. Because the best men's athletes will always, it seems, 
statistically beat the best female athletes. Men have denser bone mass, heavier muscle mass on their bodies. We are not interchangeable and identical. And so it's a dream to say, well, we've got to treat everyone equally. No, no that's, that's absurd. More to the point, Scripture, God calls on men and women to do differing things, even as he calls on us to do the same thing. We're all to love Bear with each other. But there are unique instructions for men and women in Scripture. The Scripture does not treat men and women as interchangeable. So here's Titus 2. Older women, verse 3. Likewise, there be reverent behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. And so train the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. I just want to zoom into one thing, loving their children. Paul does not assume every mother is going to love their child. We know from extra-biblical sources at this time in the Greek world, leaving children born out, exposed to the elements that they might die as a form of infanticide was commonly practiced. And of the Roman world, Crete had a bad reputation. Paul may, in part, be explicitly telling Titus, make sure the older women tell the younger women not to kill their children. That, 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 as barbaric as that may seem to us, that, I think, is likely a real possibility in that culture. And so here's two things to see from this. One, there is an obligation to care for, to love, not to murder your children. And that that's not something that's getting necessarily easy for everybody. The fact that it requires training means that it might take some work. It may not come naturally to everybody. Our, our culture wants to believe our mother's love is unbreakable. That's not true. History makes that clearly true. Frequently it is. The Bible's realistic, and Paul understands there are going to be some women in this Cretan culture who need training to love their children, to care for their children. But here's a responsibility. Here's an obligation that God has for these women. Okay. So the blank here is mothers are to be trained to love their children, to love their children. So in this brief survey before we move to application, I hope you see biblically, and if you just want one or two texts, here they are. I think really Exodus and Luke on their own should be sufficient. But, and there are more, and there, there's some helpful books. You can read this and, and get more content. Wade and Grudem's got some helpful things on this. But I, I'm arguing that biblically speaking, the unborn child is fully human, from conception, and deserving of all honor and respect due image bearers of God, which means that abortion is murder, just as... Exodus views it. Now, I want to make another caveat here. I'm, I'm, I'm sure that there's one or more people in this room who may have done this. Abortion is not the unforgivable sin. It is, it is a great evil. There's, there's no way of minimizing that. But Christ died for the sin of abortion and the sin of murder as he died for all other sins. And so if, if, if this is something you have in your past or someone in your family, there's forgiveness in Christ, full restoration in Christ, 1 John 1, nine says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We, we don't want to make this the unforgivable sin with the scarlet letter of shame and infamy forever. It's difficult. We also don't want to minimize this and, and make it a small deal. It, it, is, it is a terrible evil, and yet it's a terrible evil that Christ atoned for. There can be forgiveness. So quickly, application. 
Hopefully you are persuaded this is not an option for Christ followers. But is there any other thing we can learn from this? Quickly, point A, reject the foundational values of abortion logic. What I'm getting at here is this. The murder of the unborn in the womb, the killing of the unborn in the womb, is simply the, the final fruit of a set of beliefs and values that are wrong and at odds with God. And it is good and right for us to say you cannot take that final step, you cannot do that, but I think we want to rip that tree up by its roots and expose the ungodly lies and beliefs that would lead someone to want to do that. In other words, it's not enough for us to agree with the culture, with all of their assumptions about children, and then just balk at the final step and say, yes, 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 they are a curse, yes, 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 you don't want them, but no, you can't kill them. So quickly, point number one, children are, and by are, I mean always and everywhere and in every instance, a blessing from the Lord. Children born of rape, disabled children, children born at impropitious times are a blessing. They have value. They're a gift from God. Psalm 127, behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward like arrows in the hands of a warrior or the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. So whatever wisdom says, cursed is the man who has too many. Cursed is the woman who has them in her youth, is disagreeing fundamentally with God. That doesn't mean we all need to have as many kids as we can. It just means you can't disagree with this without you being wrong. Whatever your choice in your families, you have to be able to amen Psalm 127, 3 to 5. And our culture doesn't. Our culture absolutely doesn't. Children are a blessing from the Lord. We've got to wrap our heads around that. Two, they are not to be sacrificed to idols. See, the irony here is this. In the first century, and back in the times of Jesus, and back in the days of Israel, the culture largely agreed with that first point. They were not sacrificing their children to Molech because they were throwing out the trash. The rationale for the sacrifice of infants was to give up something valuable for something you wanted even more. We have one account of this in, in 2 Kings. Listen to this. It's a crazy story in 2 Kings chapter 3. When the king of Moab saw that the battle was going against him, he took with him 700 swordsmen to break through opposite the king of Edom, but they could not. Then he took his oldest son, who was to reign in his place, and offered him a burnt offering on the wall. And there came great wrath against Israel, and they withdrew from him and returned to their own land. So this, this son is portrayed as valuable. This is the heir apparent. But I need to get out of here, because we're surrounded by a force. So you offer up what is valuable to you. This is the rationale to your pagan God, and the pagan God blesses you, and you escape, because that's more valuable to you. And as best as we can understand, that's what's going on in the Old Testament. When you talk about those tall trees and the Ashtaroth poles and the high places, most of these are dealing with, I need rain, I need my crops to grow, I need my animals to reproduce, which is to say they're valuing economics and economic prosperity above their children in a culture that did, in fact, value children. There's a reason why the death of the firstborn was a blight and not a blessing for Egypt, even those pagan Egyptians, because they valued their children, but I need rain more. I need crops more. It's economics. Which means then, their primary reasons for sacrificing their children, and many of our primary reasons for doing it today, line actually up pretty neatly. 
And so today, for these same reasons, for career advancement, for more freedom, so you can go on vacation more easily, we value. So the, so the culture, I just want to make the point, the culture says these things are more valuable than they are. Education's great. Career is great. Income's great. And the culture says they're, they're way more valuable than your children. And that's where you've got to say, no. No, they're not. No, they're not at all. The children are a blessing from the Lord. They are not to be sacrificed to idols. Point B, and I'll be really quick. And there could be 27 points for application. These are the first that came into my head. Point two. Raise your children to be blessings. Raise your children to be blessings. Now, I said children are a blessing from the Lord, but just because they come into this world as blessings does not mean they continue as blessings. Now, you, you and I have been in the supermarket and heard the ruckus coming from two aisles over, and you've thought to yourself something like, that poor woman. You see, I, interestingly, our culture also has given up almost all understanding of child-rearing and discipline and, and anything of that sense. So the children we're raising tend to be lawless, vile, rebellious, insubordinate. Not, not mine, but other people's, right? Um, <laughs> And so the, the scripture warns of this. And perhaps one of the reasons why the culture and others don't want to have kids is because they see children who are not a blessing. They're like, I don't want that. So, so one of the things we could do is to take this seriously. They come into the world as a blessing. Keep them a blessing. Let's read some of the Proverbs to you, making this point clear. Proverbs 10.1. A wise son makes his father glad, but a foolish son is a sorrow to his mother. Proverbs 10.5, he who gathers in the summer is a prudent son, but he who sleeps in the harvest is a son who brings shame. You can have children who bring shame upon you. Proverbs 17.25, a foolish, foolish son is a grief to his father and bitterness to her who bore him. Proverbs 19.26, he who does violence to his father and chases away his mother is a son who brings shame and reproach. And tying it all together, Proverbs 29.15, the rod and reproof give wisdom... But a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. So the Bible insists children come into this world a blessing. The Bible also insists they don't necessarily stay that way. Which is why Psalm 37, 26, speaking of the righteous man, his children become a blessing. Part of the reason why our culture is, is resistant to having children, why they might consider these extreme actions, is because they see so many children around them who do not look like blessings but look like cursings. And so one of the things we can do is to show the world God's wisdom is wise. That, that when he says children are blessing, they are. That someone might meet your children and think, I, I might like to have one of those. But th- does that seem too far of a stretch? That, that's what, some of the things we can do. Now, we are over time. We're going to talk in the ABF. This is some heavy stuff, and, and we could do easily five weeks on this topic. I want to close in prayer. If you have questions, if you stick around, we'll talk. But I want to settle this for the people of God, that the child in the womb is fully human, from conception, deserving of all honor and respect, due image bearers of God. Lord God, help us not to waver from this belief, but to receive your word and to give the proper value and esteem and honor due to image bearers. Help us to accept this truth and give us wisdom as we interact with our neighbors and our culture. Lord, we pray that you would protect the life of the weak and the powerless, the widow and the orphan and the unborn. Lord God, restrain that evil in our world. 
In Jesus' name, amen.